would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. My name's Paul Joy and we have created this podcast to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you might be tuning in from, whatever activity you might be partaking in while you listen in, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And I'm delighted to share with you now another conversation with another yog, a Yarra old grammarian. We explore the twists and the turns, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the challenges, the potholes, the highest of highs and some of the struggles too. And today our guest is Bronwyn Beach-Jones from the class of 2013. Bronwyn is a very, very thoughtful, methodical, intellectual, delightful communicator. She's a big thinker and... She acknowledges that herself. She spent a lot of time in her head, but has, in doing that, focused on and thought through how that can work best for her. She lives a life of adventure, appreciating the simple things, but also enjoys going back and exploring and experiencing things from times gone by. And as you too will be, She is and I was inspired. I had goosebumps at times during this conversation because part of her exploration at the moment is inspiring women, researching, inspiring normal everyday women in rural Indonesia. Like, wow. She is uncovering, unpacking and starting to tell the stories of people whom's, whose story would otherwise never be heard. She's a ripper. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Bronwyn Beach-Jones and her time at Yarra and then what happened after that. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. And today I get to sit down with Bronwyn Beach-Jones from the class of 2013. Bronwyn, I wonder if you, we might begin with you sharing with us uh, what year did you start at Yarra? What year were you in? And what do you remember of the uniform in those days? Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I started at Yarra in year seven, and that was in 2008. And of the uniform, I remember being very shocked by having to wear a dress every day because from the primary school I was at before, I wore shorts um, and a polo shirt and the idea of having to wear long socks and a dress was something it took a little while to get used to, especially in the February months when it's so so hot. I, uh, I have the privilege of teaching some Year 7s and if they are ever coming from their sport class or their peer class, they're always going to be late because not only do they have to wear a uniform and manage how that works, but they've got to get changed in between. Um, no doubt there were some uh, funny moments in the change rooms and as everyone's trying to, you know, maybe you lose your socks or, you you know, you put your things in the wrong bag or whatever. But it is a challenging year, that year seven. Where did you hang out? Where was your favourite place? In, and it might be associated with the people that you kind of got 
to know, but was there a, a spot in year seven where you would uh, tend to, to hang? It's a good question. I think in year seven particularly, it was in the calf, um, which I think was a common hangout spot for many. And I remember the, the wall heaters in winter and how it was almost a game of how close you could get to the wall heater without any of your uniform burning and how long you could stand there to really get um, get warm. So I think there. And then throughout school, I started to enjoy any opportunity to be outside. Mm. So after year seven, see, we started, my friends and I started sitting outside at recess and lunchtime and um, finding that little spot of sun to relax in was really Fantastic. special. That's great. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned the CAF because lots of people actually kept going back to the CAF for many, many years and it was a popular spot. Do you recall uh, making use of the CAF? Was there a favourite go-to? Was there, a I don't know, a hot chips on a Friday? Was there a, a, a thing that you love to get from the CAF? Oh, I was a kind of passive CAF user that I, um, I enjoy sharing food with friends, but always quite religiously brought my own lunch. Uh-huh. But a couple of hot chips on the side never went astray. Yeah, you'll, you'll take that too, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Do you remember back in your day, um, year seven, early in those, um, I guess, the creation of connection and, and friendships and so forth, sometimes there are some excursions or a camp that is part of that early on experience. Do you remember a significant uh, gathering of year seven did you go on camp together early in Year 7? Yes, I did. Um, I actually found making friendships in Year 7 quite hard. So I was I was nervous in camp mm. about how to n- navigate those new friendships. I think that's a time of such transition, mm. so you're becoming a teenager and also going from being, being the big fish in primary school mm. to suddenly being in this much larger ocean. Mm. So I don't think it was necessarily an event for me but I had a friend who joined Yara um, in second term of year seven and it's kind of like magnets, we just found each other. Fantastic. And it was just on a normal day rather than a big event. Yes. That, so those kind of, more those everyday moments, I think, for me. That's great. And there's something very authentic about that. But I wonder, and, and maybe it points to a little of your character uh, of being able to almost put yourself in in somebody else's shoes and have empathy for them but as difficult as it was for you and lots of others to begin year seven at the start of the year I wonder how much more difficult to start one term in because a lot of the friendships have started and they've connected and people kind of know their way around that is a brave and courageous young person to start year seven midway through the year absolutely and I know um, my friend was really nervous um, and coming from English as a second language adds mm. that extra level of anxiety. And I think that that we just found each other and were able to instantly feel relaxed um, for both of us who right. felt quite at sea. It was just stabilising and we remained friends until now. Right, okay. I was going to ask, so did that connection and friendship continue through, you know, your middle school years and... There you start to, you know, and some of the friendship groups change and, and there's some movement in that. Was there a, a place in the school, not the CAF, but maybe 
based on subject or based on interest where you would tend to be starting to spend some more of your time. You might start to choose electives at the mm-hmm. sort of the end of, you know, into year nine and year 10 and so forth. Where, from an academic sense, would we have found you? Oh, I really revelled in electives. Yep. In year nine and 10 and choosing a broad range. Okay. But my interests in history and the humanities started to cement. Uh-huh. So you'd often find my friends and I drifting in and out of the library, sitting in uh, the area between the middle school and the old library where there were umbrellas, mm-hmm. yep. um, which was a kind of meeting spot between the music school mm-hmm. where many of my friends were very active and the library, but quick to the locker so we could get to class on time. Very good. And it, it's interesting that those geographic locations are important and there was some strategy in where you were hanging out. As you say, close to the lockers, not far from music, not far from the library, and you were outside. So you mm. you had worked that very, very well. Would you have suggested that you were a leader within your friendship group or were you one to more just wait and laugh at other people's jokes? I think one of the wonderful things about the friendship group I found at the end of Year 7 which and remain almost the same with a few kind of drifting in and out until you're 12, is that we all, we all were very equal. Hmm. And so there wasn't that real sense of that um, dominant person, hmm. you know, the, the one who tells all the jokes and the, um, who sets the dress code for the, when you hang out on the weekend. There was some more of a sense of listening to each other, hmm. being together and learning from each other. Yeah, so there was no sort of you didn't have to prove yourself to anyone and you didn't have to seek permission to come and be part of the group. Everyone had respect for each other just because they were people. Yeah, and I think that was a foundation that shaped me and I think shaped my friends. Yeah. When there's so much change as you go through adolescence, but having that that stable group who you're growing with, you can have those deep conversations with, but also revel in a bit of nonsense. Mm, mm. So special. And it is. It's a balance, isn't it? Finding finding that group of people but you, where you can be yourself and you can communicate and connect and challenge each other from time to time but but be a bit silly sometimes too and have some fun. And, and I wonder whether for you, I, I appreciate you saying library was important, maybe a bit of music and humanities was sort of an area of your um uh, I guess, interest that, that was really peaked while you're at school. Was there much um, fun for you on a Saturday morning? Did you a- engage with the school sporting program, Saturday morning sport, and what sport, and did you love it? Absolutely. I um, played softball and soccer, and from year nine I was in firsts in in both, and I found sport, and I still find sport now, such a release. Um, and I, I live a lot in my head. And there's something about being able to use that logical mind in a different way, but also get outside of your head and mm-hmm. be in your body. Um, so Saturday mornings and Monday and Wednesday afternoons for first training are still in my head. And I think sometimes I still wake up a bit early. <laughs> right. So that they were enjoyable times. And, and I guess 
you've mentioned that you live a lot in your head and and those who know you and would would acknowledge that there's a lot going on in your head and you are able to hold um, information and data and detail but also you do a lot of processing so it's not mm. just about memorizing stuff it's actually being able to apply those things you, it seems to me that back then even you understood the value of and it's not quite the right word but balance having some yeah. physical outlet and, and health is important but also feeding your mind and the intellectual and would you say that is that part of your lifestyle today where you recognize the value of the various parts of life. Yeah, I think that's something that gets more challenging after you finish school. True. And, but I feel really grateful that um, Saturday sport was compulsory when I was at school and that um, really cemented that sense of balance in me mm. and that that was essential for my well-being. Mm. So I know I got, um, I got injured playing soccer in year 11 here and when the ability to, to play sport and be active was taken away from me, mm. um, I found that really challenging through year 12 because I would always get up and go for a run if I was feeling stressed and suddenly I needed to have new outlets. Uh -huh. um, and I worked really hard through year 12 and the first year out of school to be able to go for a run again without pain in wow. my ankle. And I remember the first time I was able to do it was just this feeling of freedom mm. of being able to run and the wind in my hair. And from then on, um, while I'm probably not as, uh, I don't do sport as routine as I should, I still find that if I am too much in my head, I know I just need to go outside, yeah. go for a brisk walk, go for a jog and that what seems like it's unsolvable will suddenly be solvable afterwards not enough people understand that do they and i totally agree with you that sometimes when you're so consumed with the thinking and 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 that might lead to worry or it might be problem solving or mm -hmm. it might be actually leaving it at the desk mm -hmm. and going out and doing something different and yeah. could be as simple as making a cup of tea Absolutely. or it's getting out there and going for a run mm -hmm. or a walk or getting some fresh air and some sunshine perhaps it helps you to see things from a different perspective oh, almost I so instantly. Agree. I think during year 12 when I couldn't go for a run, I got really into cooking. Okay. And so suddenly my friends would have cakes at recess Beautiful. that I was, you know, experimenting with. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that getting out and I think it's often about moving your body in a different way. Mm. We sit so much. Yeah. And I know I do a lot um, thinking through things, doing reading and writing. And so getting up and moving just i think the cogs of your brain start to click into gear yes yes in your school experience you uh had a a range of uh experiences outside of the classroom where perhaps you were visiting places you might have been on tours and things like that i wonder if you can uh, recall maybe a funny moment or a really pivotal moment where you're away with probably some friends yeah. doing something probably that you love and there was that moment that you go, that just springs to mind because it was a memorable moment. Absolutely. There's one that comes to mind. Um, so I went to Sarawak in Malaysia. Malaysia. In okay. 2011 um, with a group of students learning Indonesian. Great. This was at a time when we um, still school groups were not allowed to go to Indonesia. Uh -huh. um, 
but we were able to go to Malaysia and we're in Borneo um, in a Dayak family's longhouse. We've had to travel in by longboat, which is like a very elongated canoe, down a river. And, and are you arrive. sitting kind of single file? Single file. Right. <laughs> and so there's all of these probably very unflattering photos of us looking over our shoulder as we try and snap this very memorable moment. And then at night, we were officially welcomed by the family and we were sitting um, with the crickets of the jungle mm. outside, sitting, and it was really the first time that I got to use my Indonesian language skills in action. Right. And I think... Often we separate those very everyday moments from academic rigour, but I was just speaking to someone about their family, telling him about my family, Mm. and we were sharing stories about the school we went to, what a kangaroo looks like, and one of the members of the winter snow sports team was trying to describe what snow was like to someone who's never seen snow before and probably never really been cold before in our terms. Mm. And just this human moment of connection that really opened my eyes to what second language can do. Yes, yes. And what a a combination of challenge right there to use a a language that's not your your own, Mm. not your your first language at least, trying to describe something to somebody that they've never experienced, whether it be cold or snow even, and trying to pick the words and then translate the words into a language that that hopefully they might understand. And there'd be a lot of, I don't know, uh, hand gestures and, oh, yes. <laughs> and and quite some laughs along the way, I dare say. Oh, yes. And I have to, my, uh, my command of Indonesian at that moment was probably definitely not what it is now, yeah. to say the least. So I think there were a few moments where I... Um, probably really confused him with what I was trying to say. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think uh, th- there are pivotal moments, though, where you can see your your learning career, your education and the formality of that mm. actually connect with other people. Mm. And all of a sudden you go, ah, that's why I've been learning all those things and, yes. and really pouring over this, trying to get the, the, the tweaks and the twangs just right mm. so that I can actually connect back to another human. And the magic thing for me is that it's circular. So then getting back into the classroom, mm. there's so much more motivation. Yes, it makes more sense now. this is why I'm doing it. Right. And that that dream of I could have a better conversation. Yeah. I could understand more about where they're coming from. Yeah. And we can meet and create this kind of middle space. Yes. So let's go back to school and and applying our Indonesian. I imagine Indonesian was a subject that you followed through, mm. maybe some humanities as well, into senior school. And then from there, what happened next? You did reasonably well. You were happy with the VCE. Yes. You got a number and that number opened a number of doorways. Where did you go? What did you do after leaving Yarra? So I, I studied arts at the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And it was everything I've ever wanted to do. Wow. Okay, great. Um, I knew I wanted to do arts and continue history and Indonesian. Um, politics was also and in the picture and anthropology. Um, and I decided that on the University of Melbourne is where my brother went as well and 
as I followed in his footsteps to come to Yarra, I followed in his footsteps to go to the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very close. And so I think that made it a less scary experience. Yes. Um, That's great. Now, there would be a number of people who might uh, think that doing arts is a bit of a fallback plan. But it seems to me that arts was on the agenda. That's what you – it wasn't a I'm just waiting to work out what I want to do. It, it was a deliberate, intentional, this is the field that you want to explore. Absolutely. Um, I think I got that a lot actually because I was uh, co-ducks of my year and many times people said to me, oh, just arts. And I think that's something that uh, we should fight back against mm. Because arts is about feeling, thinking and imagining Mm. and that's what makes us human. Mm. So it is what I wanted to do and it's taken me to where I want to go as well. Mm. But I understand that that type of very open degree, it's not for everyone. I think that after school there's so many different pathways you can go on. It's just about finding the one that's right for you. Mm. So this was right for you and equally not everybody experiences that either. They mm. think they're on the right path, they think they've made the right choices, but then it the reality of it doesn't isn't what they mm. thought, wasn't what they were expecting. But I'm delighted to hear your experience was and it was your sweet spot. Mm. Did that lead you said it led to opportunities and and all that thinking and imagining and talking and learning and where did it lead? Did it lead to a job? Did it lead to travel? Did it lead to relationships? Did it lead to um, making an impact? Where did you go next? What did you do next? So I finished my arts degree and I did an honours year and then I was accepted into the PhD program and so I'm currently a PhD candidate in history at the University of Melbourne and I am the holder of what's called the Hanson Scholarship in History, which is about communicating the power and importance of history. Um, and I'm also working at the moment as a research assistant on a, a um, project on women's influence on governance and development in Indonesia. So it's about how everyday women in rural Indonesia are making a difference um, and trying to improve the lives of their families and lives of their very small communities. Um, so you can see that History and Indonesian are two roads that I still travel on. Love it. And I also had the opportunity through my studies to visit Indonesia and go on exchange. And again, I had that kind of penny drop moment of this is what I'm doing it for. Wow. And to create friendships. And then in my honours year, uh, when I was studying Sumatran women's history, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to go to Padang in West Sumatra, which is on the coast of the Indian Ocean. So if you kind of follow Western Australia up and a little bit to the left on the map, there's the island of Sumatra. And in this city of Padang, I was researching the first women's newspaper in the Dutch East Indies. And so these are students, many of whom teenagers, who are the first in their family to go to school and they're writing in 1912 to 1921, and I get the chance to read these. And so that took me back to where they're from in West Sumatra. But also along the way, in a very unexpected um, way, it 
took me to meet my partner, who is now my husband. And um, I think that just shows where, where you start off on the road and where you end up. It can be two very different places, but it's just that all the turns you go on to get there. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's a beautiful reflection and there's so many layers to that. Um, exploring history and and I probably don't need to be careful, but I want to be careful not to bring judgment into mm. the conversation. But would you consider it quite a niche group of people to be studying? Yes. That is women mm. in rural yes. Indonesia. Yes. And the impact that they've mm. had, as you say, on families, on community, mm. on the villages, on... Yes. Um, I imagine that there are some stereotypical mm. kind of factors in play there. Um, I've never travelled to Indonesia, but I also imagine that the lifestyle that most of us who are part of Yara mm. are used to in terms of the school and the resources and the the wealth that mm. is around us would be a different experience for women, especially in rural Indonesia. Yes. Can you share with us a story mm. of maybe somebody mm. who, who captured your imagination? And, and albeit this is true. Yes. These are true stories, mm. real lives that you're – and I'm curious also about how does one study the impact? Is it mm. conversations? Are you visiting in the villages? Are you reading their diaries? Are yes. you Are you looking for newspaper reports? Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm fascinated. Tell us how does this work happen? Very interesting. So, yes, I'm in, involved in two projects and I'll speak about my own more. So my own is more about – history so it's and these are women who lived around around a century ago a little more and you're so right that with so many differences between the life that I have where I grew up and them not just in terms of time but culturally linguistically um and in terms of class and wealth mm. and opportunities but there's something if you slow down and really listen, well, listening through reading of words and expressions and emotions that you can really connect, even if the people are very different. Mm. So I, that's what I find very powerful about history mm. and very powerful about the humanities and research. And then if I come century forward into the other project that I've been involved in um, as a research assistant, to women who today are making a difference in their own villages. There are so many stories of girls and women who have empowered themselves, who have continued education, found scholarships so they can continue education, sold snacks at school to make sure that they have enough money on the, for the bus on the way home. And I think that that sense of drive mm. and motivation mm. is something that we can both connect to, even though we're different, mm. but also learn from and learn from in a reflective way about thinking about the privilege mm. of where we are and the opportunities we have, and also how we can dedicate ourselves to helping 
us go along that path to a more equal and just world mm. where we can meet more in the middle and learn from each other. Oh, wow. Um, so these are stories. So, so the, the stories of the women mm. in rural Indonesia, as you say, they've, they've had to find a way to keep growing and learning mm. and find a way to, to better their circumstance. Mm. And I imagine that these are stories that unless somebody's out there asking and talking and interacting, they're stories that we're not going to hear about. Very true. There are stories of of success mm. and often that's it might be in technology, it might be in business, it mm. might be in um, fashion, it might be in fame. We hear about those stories and they are inspirational. There are women who, who do amazing things and that we should celebrate that. But the stories of the women that you're talking about and that you're – so are you actually interacting with these women or are you um, reading about them? So I, my role in the present-day project has been more editing and working with um, the data and stories gathered by an Indonesian research team. Okay, so it has that yeah. collaborative element as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a, even reading a transcript or reading mm. a story, mm. you can hear their voice. Mm. Um, and you're right that that, I think it really speaks to how success means different things. Yes. And for me, success is more about improving the lives of others and not drawing that separation between self and other, that we're always mm. together. And it's trying to rededicate ourselves every day towards making our community and even our global community more knowledgeable, fair, equal and just. Mm. And so it, you can't find success in those small moments of reflection when you think about what you've done and what is left to do mm. rather than it being a destination mm -hmm. which you can arrive at. Mm. Sometimes... When we stop and reflect and we go, look how far we've come, mm. that, that's great. Yes. But then you said, and we look at what's left to do. Yes. That potentially becomes daunting mm. because we say, well, actually, compared to where, and, and I agree, it's not all about the destination, yes. but if we're a long way from where we mm. want to be, we could get overwhelmed with that. Very true. Yes, we've progressed, but boy, mm. oh boy, do I have the oomph to keep going. Yes, that middle of the road yes, moment, looking tough. back, but always looking forward. I think that that's where, for me, that importance of the past is, ever, is always there because we don't know how far we've come unless we can see it mm. and we can feel it. Yeah. And then I think... That's where the motivation can come from because we can see how we stand on the shoulders of others who have already worked mm. for these ideals and these goals mm. and who are pushing us on yeah. to continue. So, <laughs> wow. I have used the analogy and, and I don't know whether you agree with it or not. I'm not sure I agree with it now either. The analogy of driving a car. And when you sit in your car, 
you have a very large windscreen in front of you. Very big view out the front. Yes. You also have a rear vision mirror, which is relatively small mm-hmm. by comparison. Yes. And I think I have used that concept to say, by all means, let's keep an eye on what's mm. happened in the past. Let's keep an eye on the rear vision mirror, but let's keep most of our energy and most of our focus moving forward. Now, you're a historian. Yes. You're, are you living, and I don't, this is not a, a derogatory idea, <laughs> but are you living in the past or are mm. you heading forward? Where And, and I love your, your note, that middle of the road moment. Yes. And maybe actually, as I process this out loud, maybe me in my car, I'm in the middle of the road. I'm mm. partway along my journey. And I can look in the revision mirror and see where I've come from. Yes. And all of the memory and story and mm. journey that's been there. But for me, the exciting bit is what's ahead. Yes. What's around the corner. Because I don't yet know what's there. Absolutely. I agree. I think to be within that metaphor, I think if we imagine that we're standing more and we can look back to where we've been mm. and we know that part of the road. Yes. And all of the challenges that have been there. The potholes, the, the potholes. twists, the turns, the, the hills. Oh, the Yes. And then there's that apprehension about where we're going mm. but that sense of excitement yeah. and the thrill of that unknown. Yeah. Um. To me, I think history is always written within the present. So I'm interested in what I'm interested in because I'm drawn to it Mm. to maybe explain where we are now and uh, where we're going, Mm. see if some of these uh, phenomena have exhibited in different forms or felt somewhat similar, but mm. in a different circum- in different circumstances in the past. So those kind of three parts of the road, where we are, where we've been, and where we're going, yeah. they're always there. Yeah. Have to be. And often people get stuck either in the past or they get worried mm. about the future yes. and they actually forget about the right here and now. And, and yes. we talk about how important it is to be present and mm. to be in the moment and but also equally holding the past mm. and the future. It is it's all three. You need all three. It is. And then it sounds so easy when we when we say it like this, but we all grapple with that. Yeah. It's um, a wrestle. Uh, yes. For attention. For attention and uh, oh, you're right for attention. You see, you. I know I feel in those kind of quiet moments, you know, your head drifts back into the past or yeah. drifts forward to those maybe anxious questions or kind of daydreaming about what can be and then to pull yourself back in to your body to yes. think about how you're going to get there or how you're going to take that experience that you've built yeah. into the future. Hmm. You are a, a big thinker, a deep thinker. You're reflective. Other than people getting to sit and have conversation with you like we are all mm. having the privilege of now, how are you sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your ideas and your ability to to feel those stories mm. and to bring them into the now? Yes. Are, are you writing? Are you 
do you have your own show? Like, <laughs> how are you capturing the 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 beauty of your ability to reach into the past, bring it to the now, and then see where that goes in the future? So, as a PhD student, I am writing okay. my thesis at the moment and some other shorter articles and book chapters, but um, I'm so passionate about teaching. Mm-hmm. So I have the privilege of being a tutor at the University of Melbourne now. And as you know, I was involved in the past student mentoring program for many years. Mm. And I think it is often in the spoken word, sometimes in the written word, but where you can meet ideas Mm. and I can read something, students can read something. We talk about it, talk about the context it was written in Mm. and Together we can work it out mm-hmm. and kind of take our minds back to the moment when it was written. Mm. And I love that, that it's actually a collaborative process that that you bring all of your wealth of wisdom and insight, mm. but it also gets richer when you tap into somebody else's perspective and idea and concept of what's going on. Oh, it does. And together you might create a, a fuller picture. Yes, I think that's what um, the... The joy of teaching yeah. is that you as a teacher gain so much yeah. from it yeah. and perspectives that oh, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. And then I'll often on the way home from a class be like, wow, that was a great point. Yes. And then that opens up so many possibilities. Yeah. And it also it sparks mm. that sense of wonder about knowledge mm. and wonder about the different perspectives that we bring because of the different pasts and mm. roads we've travelled on to that moment. Yes. Which, I mean, I've been in the teaching game for longer than you. Yes. And I would say even if I look back on my, not only my teaching career, but also my career as a student, mm. which was obviously before I was a teacher, I was a student. And it, it, maybe even now there are some teachers who, certainly back then, who don't anticipate that they're going to learn things from their students. Mm. The teacher was the wealth of all knowledge. The teacher had all the answers. And thankfully that's changing. But it actually, for a period of time, and maybe still, it it was a courageous teacher who was vulnerable enough to say, I don't know where this path's going to end Mm. up. Let's go and find out together. Yes. And and that's a powerful teacher, but not mm. every teacher does that. I imagine in your experience at school, there were some teachers who who dare I say inspired you. Oh yes, and and just gave you enough for you to to I guess wet your appetite mm. and explore this, and and you had the ability and the desire to to find out more and discover more, and you can mention names if you wish, <laughs> but. This is called the Inspired by Yarra yes. podcast. And I wonder whether you could talk for a moment about inspiration, whether it's places, classrooms, mm. teachers, stories, times when you sat in the audience, times when you yes. were on the stage. Tell me a little bit about your experience of inspiration. I think you're so right to pick up on that word vulnerable because actually I think it's when, for me, it was teachers who could slow the class down to a point where they were being vulnerable and we were encouraged to be vulnerable Mm. with our thoughts. Maybe there's those half-baked ideas Mm -hmm. that you think 
is that right? Is it wrong? And you're encouraged in that safe space to share it or it's sharing your own experiences. Mm. So I had wonderful teachers here um, who, you're right, kind of led me to a point and then said, you can go Mm. and you can go in a direction that you choose. And I think that that cultivated in me a love of critical thinking and those critical thinking skills. Um, And I was so inspired by the people who I learnt alongside as well. Mm. Um, I think that through school I was encouraged to not have that competitive sense and that has instilled in me knowing that we're all on our own paths. I think that that's a very inspiring thing Mm. and that that was created by a culture Mm -hmm. rather than necessarily by individual teachers. Mm. I'm just thinking now about a moment of inspiration. I'm going to go to a place more. I think that there is a moment when you walk in the PAC, in the Performing Arts Centre, when there's not a large event on, you're coming from backstage and you get to see the expanse open up Mm. and all you hear is your own footsteps. I find that incredibly inspiring because it's the place and the anticipation that something amazing is going to happen. Whether that be music, whether that be a drama performance, sitting in the audience for a Um, inspirational speech or any of those moments there's the moment before Mm. which is particularly inspiring for me Mm. wow I love that and I have felt that both as one who was anticipating what was about to happen Mm. but also as one who was trying to facilitate what was about to happen and they're two different experiences Mm. but but to be honest the way I (laughs) <laughs> the way I tend to uh, approach it is we're both going to learn something from this. Yes. Both me and the audience, for example, mm-hmm. we're, we're both going to discover something because I've got a bit of an idea where we might go, but but my way is let's find out because I tend to present mm. feeding from the, the yes, audience a little definitely. bit and, and listening to them and... Mm being nudged by them in a particular direction and and that can all happen in three minutes. It can be short and sharp Mm. but a whole lot of interchange and encounter happens in those very quick, precious moments. Yes, I I love that you took us back to the PAC. That's a great (laughs) memory. Yes. Memory. That's great. Wow. There's so many uh, more places that we could and should go but I wonder if we might move, just change pace for a little mm-hmm. bit, and that is a, a little part of our conversation that I like to call, nobody else calls it, but I like to call it the lightning round, where there's some short and sharp questions. Excellent. And, uh, and they might be top of mind, just, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing that, that pops into your head. So tell me, Bronwyn Beach-Jones, from the class of 2013, what house were you in at Yarra? I was in Hughes. And were Hughes any good back in your day? Ah. Uh, not really. <laughs> that um, is the first time anybody has ever actually been honest. Normally they would say, oh, yes, of course, we were great. 
Tell me about Hughes and their struggles. Um, we we were perennially third or fourth <laughs> in my um out of four out of four. Sorry, <laughs> third was a great year. Yeah. Um, and I was I was more involved when we did athletics, but um, there was there was always it was always a few people running a lot of races. <laughs> but I remember in year eleven and twelve, the house competition got. Expanded yes, somewhat. Yes. And suddenly, oh, all the planes of competition. <laughs> um, I remember we got some debating points, some drama <laughs> points. And I, um, when you broaden it, it's amazing how competitive some people uh-huh. who didn't really care about the house competition <laughs> could get. Uh, that's good. That's a, a helpful uh, reminder too of the the value of keeping it broad. I think, and uh, and allowing people to contribute whatever their skills and gifts might mm-hmm. be to to contribute to the team. That's really good. Um, when you were coming to school regularly, how did you travel to school? Uh, so on the train and bus. So train to Ringwood Station, and then a bus that left at it's meant to be eight ten or eight fifteen. Oh, that's tight. But uh, sometimes a little bit. A little bit late, uh-huh. so there was quite a lot of speed walking <laughs> from the bus up the old stairs. <laughs> yes, just in time just. to try and get to toot on time and, and hopefully go via your uh, your locker on the way. Is there a preference, and you can't say neither, but if it had to be, house swimming or house aths? Oh, athletics all the way. I have asthma to chlorine, so no competition. Okay. okay. And was there a particular part of aths that you, you did enjoy? Was it the running? Was it the mm. field events? Was it the high jump? Oh, running. Mm. Um, there were, uh, for the 100 metres, when I in competition athletics, there were four of us that used to run the relay in uh, year seven and year eight and into year nine. And uh, then in athletics, we all, as it happened, were in different houses. Of course. And there was this <laughs> is kind of collegiate because we actually ran together, mm. but collegiate competition. <laughs> yes. No, I like that. And and that's, that's healthy. Oh, healthy and full of joy. Yes. You're getting the best out of each other. Um, you can't say Indonesia, but if there was a destination in the world once upon a time where we're going to be able to travel mm. again. Where would you recommend people go? And it might be something on your bucket list or it might be a place that you've been to and you say, you must get yourself there. Um, it's a very good question. Hard now you've taken Indonesia out of it. <laughs> I have family, extended family in Wales. Okay. And um, you're in the in North Wales, in the hills, and there is a sense of calm mm. there where part of my body knows that my family comes from mm. there. And there is a sense of connection, which is a mystery mm. because I was not born there. Mm. I think that those that place and finding that place for whoever's listening mm. is somewhere, and I hold on to it and really hope to get back there after we can travel. Yes, yes. How does one become aware of that place though because mm. it's a discovery it's a it's yes. a it's a search it's a find but is there a is there a mindset is there an attitude is there an an openness that mm. one needs to put in their backpack when they go searching to find that sense of belonging or home or connection i think it's different for everyone 
But for me, there's there's a busyness when you travel mm. of the very practical things mm-hmm. of where you're going to sleep, how you're going to get there, how you're going to eat. And then finding a few moments in each day to just sit or stand and feel mm. how you connect and how the place connects to you. Mm. And there, that's something you can do in your own life. And it's something I've learned to do because I'm quite busy, like go get them kind of person mm. um, who's always got a few projects on the go. But finding that kind of slowness mm. and tuning in to the landscape and who you're with mm. can bring such... Um, richness to Mm. life I would say that in my own journey I I feel like I found that or I found that I was desiring that during lockdown Mm. when there were certain restrictions placed on us where we we couldn't be busy. We couldn't race around. Yes. We couldn't jump in the car and drop the kids to here and then go and do that and then go and pick them up and then have to be ready for that. And it it felt like my world at least really did slow mm. down and I quite enjoyed it. Yes. And there were things that, that I said and lots of people were saying mm. that there were good things that, out of that. Yeah. And we don't want to go back to normal. I agree. I am still wrestling with that. Mm. I really love your acknowledgement that you are a, a, a busy person, somebody who likes to keep things moving, yes. but you're also very aware of the value and the importance of mm-hmm. slowing yourself down. Are there things that you thought you would hold on to during our lockdown period, lessons that you learnt as such that you have brought into your current way of going about life or are there things that you're still trying to do what did you learn and what have you maintained yeah i agree it's such a struggle now in this moment um because part of me wants to go back to what i couldn't have and Mm. so that kind of um longing for the event for the feeling of a crowd Mm. um and the kind of racing around but then when you when i do it I have this sense of, wow, this is fast. I used to do this every day. Yeah. Um, so I kind of hold on to something else that I felt the absence of, which was being able to be with family, particularly for that period when we were five kilometres. Mm. I lived frustratingly close but far <laughs> from my parents. Right. Um, 11 kilometres. So that we had, oh, I can't even meet. We had middle. an awkward one kilometer, <laughs> and um, as I think nearly every family did, as an extended family and a close immediate family, we did zooms. And there is a kind of, there was a sadness in those that loss of connection, mm. where we all were trying so hard to stay connected, mm. but we didn't really feel it. Mm. And so I think now, it's just being able to sit around the same table, mm. look at each other, not have to say anything mm. um, and feel their presence. Mm. And I know, for instance, um, my husband who's from Indonesia has doesn't have that opportunity yet because all of his family is overseas. Mm. And so it's just us two here. And 
it will be a very special day when we are able to go and just sit with his family, not have to talk and fill that empty space on the phone, mm. but just be able to feel each other in the same room. Mm. It's a beautiful reflection. Um, if, if you were going to have family over to your place, yes. and, and let's say they're travelling, to come mm. to your place. What are you going to prepare? What meal? Do you have a go-to? Do you have a, uh, a signature dish? Good question because this has changed in the past year that I have been married because my husband is from West Sumatra and for anyone who's been to an Indonesian restaurant, that's where rendang is from, um, which is this really rich beef stew that takes seven hours, eight hours if you do it correctly. Possibly more. That could be me skimping on time. Right. Um, so that's for a very special occasion. So <laughs> you'll ever you'll know if you come over that that's that's number one. Yeah. But we make we make quite quite a few curries, um, and rice, and uh, where he's from, we we eat with our hands, and there's something very leveling, and beautiful mm. about all sitting around the table and eating with your hands, and. Mm. Um, it has been challenging though. I've had a lot of phone calls with my husband's mom and grandma trying to get recipes correct because the ingredients are uh, a little a bit handful. different here. It's a handful, a pinch of this and a pinch Ooh, of that. It is. Um, and oh, they have quite a large family. So the quantity for two is often <laughs> just doesn't work properly. But yeah, and I think food for me is, is um, an exercise in mindfulness in cooking mm. Um but has also become a way of connecting. Yeah. Um, so during lockdown, that was um, my husband and I stopping doing what we're doing and cooking together, mm. talking about something else, mm. trying to keep it light, Great. not listening to the news. And now it's also about connecting family recipes, family recipes of my family, mm. his family recipes, seeing if we can do some fusion. Mm. Mm. That's yeah. that's. Nice. You're allowed to bring three people to a dinner party at your place from any time in history, any era, any walk of life, dead or alive. Who's going to come? Who gets a seat at the table? Mm. I would love to have, if I, maybe selfish my research, but I'd love to have three people that I have only read okay. their lives. Yeah. In the newspaper I was talking about before, which is an early 20th century women's newspaper. And it's one woman who I've been researching for a few years now. And she she kept writing letters to the local um, like the local Dutch administrator about how now she should be able to go to school. That was the first set of letters. And then how she after she finished school, she should be able to run her own school and be a teacher so that more girls mm. from less privileged backgrounds were able to go to school. Mm. And she just continued to write until she got a response. Mm. And ah, just being able to act, sit alongside someone who had that drive from within mm. and finding out why mm. would be fantastic. So I think three um, girls and women have been researching and being able to it's my dream, really, get inside their head. Mm -hmm. And just like we're doing, having a conversation about what what motivates them that they might not be able 
that might not be on the surface of their writing, mm. but is below. Mm. Because it does take a certain something to keep writing those letters. Oh, it does. To get no response. And, and it's not like... It's not like she's trying to carve a career or uh, make a business or money. She's actually trying to help other people mm-hmm. to experience just a whisker of what she eventually was able to and, exactly. and education and and understanding that the, the power to progress is education mm-hmm. and, and it's to that, bring change. I think it's that sense of that education is a right mm. but thinking maybe no one told her that, uh-huh. but she worked that out for herself wow. or that she had within her that she had a right to this yeah. and that she also had the responsibility to share that with others. That's right, yes, because her experience would have shown her that there are so many who are missing out mm-hmm. on this basic human right. Yes. Because I, I, I think my experience is, well, of course, of mm. course children get an education. Of course that's part of your normal upbringing and that's because I haven't been exposed to that and I haven't lived through that the way she me too. was. Um, and I think for us and I, me too, thinking about my own privilege and that that was just the next thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And an expectation, Absolutely. of course. Um, it's thinking outside yourself mm. and mm. being able to recognise the... Yeah, to recognise that mm, there is something that connects us even through that difference. Mm. Mm. And maybe that's the curiosity, maybe that's enthusiasm or motivation, but it will exhibit itself in a different way that we share Mm. that drive. Mm. Wow. You've read a lot and in your research, perhaps for pleasure as well, is there a, a book that you would say or, or a documentary mm. or a movie that was pivotal and it might just be for pure entertainment and yes. joy? What's a, a, the title of something that you would recommend? Uh, I love the novel I Heard the Owl Call My Name mm-hmm. by Margaret Craven. This was published in it was 1967 and it's a, it's a very short novel about a young man um, who goes to be the priest in a remote communi- First Nations community in Canada in the 1960s. And to think that it was written in the 1960s, but in a very reflective way about what he, could, as a non-Indigenous person, could learn mm. from Indigenous knowledge and from knowledge of country is really inspiring to us all of those thousands of kilometres away mm. to think about what we can do now. Mm. It's written in this very um, reflective way, which as you can hear is something that I really tap into. Yes. And it encourages us to think about that maybe we look for meaning in the wrong places mm. when it's actually just there, mm. that we don't need to search for it. Mm. But we find it in the everyday moments. Mm. Powerful. If things go really well for you, the next three years. What's Bronwyn Beach Jones up to? What are you doing? What have you achieved? What have you what have you accomplished? What are mm. where are you living? What are you what are you feeling in three years' time if things go right? Yes. Okay. Well, I will finish my PhD uh-huh. and 
have either turned it into or will be turning it into a book. Great. From thesis and sharing what I've learned. Marvellous. Um, I hope in three years to be able, that my husband and I will be able to put a deposit down on a house. Wonderful. Um, and that we will be able to travel again. Yeah. Travel means a lot to me as I know it means a lot to others. And um, particularly now with having family overseas, um, that we, if we can travel freely mm. and that we still have our health, mm. that w- that's my ideal three years. Love it. Love it. And because it's you and the lessons that you've taught us, it, it, it's about travelling but then being there. Mm. And, yes, there's a busyness with travel, but then there's the, the contemplation and the experience and the just, let's just sit for a moment. Yeah, and I think, well, I hope that when we are able to travel again, we will do mm. it in a more mindful way. Yes. Because sometimes it is when something is taken away from us that we learn to realise its value and importance. Mm. So perhaps this time that we can't, we can think about how we can do it in a more culturally, environmentally conscious way mm. and also tune into our inner sense of self and mm. presence. Mm. It's so good. It's so good. Um, do you have a mobile phone? I do. What are two or three apps that you use regularly? Mm. I'm a bit of a news nut. Uh-huh. So I have to say I'm very glued to ABC News. But in terms of a app that I find helpful, it might seem a bit odd, but I really use voice recorder a lot. Mm-hmm. I really like reading out loud and it has all the way through my learning journey since primary school been a way of me comprehending things, um, complex ideas, mm. but also just reveling in the beauty of language. Mm. And that's in English and now in Indonesian. Now I'm, I'm trying to learn um, the local language Minang, which is an Indonesian language at the moment, and reading out loud and reading words you find beautiful out loud and listening back to them. You have this moment where you can hear you meeting the author and something in the mm. middle happening. Mm. So it, I find particularly if you have an idea that you think you haven't expressed in the right words for anyone who does writing, Mm. Something about reading it and then hearing it back that you can think of where you can move the words to or Mm. would it sound better if it was phrased in a different way. Wow. I love that. I love that. And I love the intentionality around that. And Mm. because you've discovered that works for you and and so you're continuing to use it. And are there other uh, habits or rhythms that are important to you in I guess you being the best version of you? Mm. I think we're always on a journey to discover them. So sometimes I catch myself doing something and think I should do this more often. Mm -hmm. Like if I find myself on a kind of lazy Sunday afternoon doing regular garden maintenance, I think I should do this. This makes (laughs) me feel good. Um, On everyday things, I'm really loving how now my walk in the afternoon is not uh, the only time outside I get. 
but has gone back to being contemplation mm. and a chance for conversation if it's with others. Mm. I found that my that walk kind of got hijacked in during lockdown. Mm. Very challenging mm. um, because walking and moving, as we talked about before, has been a way of me resolving problems. So now it's gone back to that. I find that very helpful. And I can sometimes add two or three walks a day mm. if I'm really trying to think through things mm. or come to a sense of completion. Mm. Mm. It's a good practice. It is a good practice. And I think it's an underrated practice. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes, um, sometimes I will do it because I feel like I have to in a busy day. Right. You know, oh, I have to go for a walk now. Tick you know, it on the list. Tick it on the list. Mm. And then maybe 15 minutes in, like, wow, I feel lighter. Mm. And, you know, the, the what I've been thinking about, finally, if I just did it like this, it'll be fine. Or like, don't worry about that thing you're overthinking. Yeah. And so that's when if you make something habitual, mm. even if you don't think it's good for you and you still do it, you get that benefit. Yes. Yes, because it's, it's beyond the feeling. You don't have to feel like going for a mm. walk, but if it's habitual, if it's something that's just part of who you are and how you you know you operate best, then the the benefit of that will continue to, to show up. Yes. Even when you're not expecting it or not feeling it, it's still worth continuing it. Yeah, I agree. And so I'm trying at the moment to uh, create another habit because since school I haven't been drawing or doing art a lot mm. and I think that's because I wasn't that great at it mm -hmm. and I still had in year eight or year nine a sense that I should be good at something mm -hmm. to do it a lot right yes you know and I think that's very normal very normal. you know mm. but now I realized I missed it mm. in the last few years and doing something just for you just because you like it. I could do some drawing mm. most nights now. Don't need to share it with anyone. Doesn't need to be good to go in an exhibition. Mm. But doing it for the practice, mm. I find that very therapeutic, actually. And I think I wish I'd realised that earlier. And I think that I could have used that past stressful moments so i'm looking forward to using it more in the future mm, yes yeah developing the the discipline the habit mm. so that then in time you'll just naturally apply it and then you might yes. reap some reward from that I some think, benefit from yeah. that and i think there is great value in finding a way to express creativity mm. and even if we don't think we're creative or can't draw yes. or we're not that good at it or because you're right a whole lot of self-judgment comes into play mm. but doing it anyway not to have to show somebody else, no. but just for the pure joy of it is a, is a terrific place to be. I want to offer a phrase to you now and, and seek your reflection on it. Um, it might be something that you're familiar with, and that is uh, lavavi oculus. Mm -hmm. um, do you recall what it means? And then what does it mean? So I lift up my eyes. Yes. Um, I do remember it. And I think that it's a wonderful phrase because it means something different to everyone mm. and it's meant different things to me. Um, I actually, when I was here, really associated with place 
mm-hmm. and the beautiful hills and that sense of arrival mm. at school. Um, and then that lifting up your eyes to future possibilities, to a wider world, to other ways of thinking and being in the world mm. and being open to them and learning for them has become something that has gone on being a driving principle in my life. And it, kind of, it reminds me of this phrase which I find, or saying that I find very inspirational, um, which is from the Minang people of West Sumatra. It's alam takambang jadi guru, which means the ever-expanding world as teacher. So as your world gets larger, you learn more about others and about yourself. Hmm. I'm just writing that down because uh, it's very powerful. Can you say it in Indonesian again? Sorry, in Minang, it's, in Minang. A, it's alam takambang jadi guru. And it means the ever-expanding world is teacher. Yes. Love it. I love it. Bronwyn Beach-Jones from the class of 2013, you've been very generous with your time and your willingness to dive back and to pull out some of those memories. And and it's not just telling the stories. It's it's You've done some processing along the way and you've helped us to learn from your experience and you've shared that. And, uh, and I'm not captivated by history, but I do love story. And I'm really looking forward to reading the stories of some of the women that you're researching and that you're going to bring their stories out mm-hmm. into the light of day. And by the sounds of it, you'll also find the the meaning and the lesson and the motivation. And I sense that there'll be an opportunity for you to teach through that. Mm. But I sense that you'll also leave enough room for the reader to also find their own conclusions or inspirations or power in those stories. Uh, I'm really excited for the work that you're doing. And I love the combination between your your passion, which perhaps was fueled at Yarra Valley Grammar for both Indonesian and history mm. and communication and teaching and learning and all those good, powerful things that you've got wrapped up in a beautiful little ball that is you. And so thank you for your time. Thanks that you've enabled yourself to recognise you have been inspired by Yarra. Yes. And as you seek to give back and make an impact in the, the world, you truly are an inspiration to Yarra. And so for that, we thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Did you feel it? Did you feel those goosebumps? Just quietly, softly, beautifully spoken thoughtful yet inspirational her work is so important and i imagine this is my own naivety speaking but i imagine probably not going to receive the accolade that such important work deserves really appreciate the devotion to telling the story and learning the lessons of times gone by and helping the current and future generation to understand it and appreciate it. 
Bronwyn, thank you for your time. And I hope our listening audience have also enjoyed and breathed deeply into this conversation. This is one of many in our growing library of podcast interviews and conversations here on the Inspired by Yarra podcast, and I hope that you're enjoying them. Give us a like, give us a shout out, share this journey with others, because the more who hear about it, the more it grows and the richer it gets and the more stories we hear and the more impact we can make as we share these powerful stories with others. So please, we would love you to share it with some of your contacts so that we too can help them hear these stories and pass them on. So I hope you'll join us again next episode after you've shared this one where I'll sit down with another Yog, another Yarra Old Grammarian and see how too they have been not only inspired by Yarra but are then seeking to be an ongoing inspiration to our Yarra community. My name's Paul Joy and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra and in particular those who help put these stories together and share them with you, I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you go out there with a intention to make a positive impact in the world around you. Thank you.